Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is going to be a great day. I'm looking forward to our time together, whether you're listening live or you're going to catch it on the podcast later. I always uh, look forward and hope that we are going to do some great study time together and we're going to grow in our faith. And I I promise I come to work and thinking I'm going to probably learn as much as you, and I'm always looking forward to finding out what my guests are going to um, teach on. And today I've got Dr. Alex McFarlane joining me in just a minute. And then Dr. Greg Heddington will be coming on right after Alex. And we're going to continue our study in the book of John. And we're in John chapter 18 today, which is going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to that. And then in hour two, we're going to have a, a replay of uh, Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall, who talked about trauma. I thought that conversation was so important that it would be definitely worth your time to hear again because I know trauma affects everybody in some way, shape, or form. If it's not you personally, it's someone that you know and love. So it's a very important topic, and it's one I think uh, when you get a nice Christian perspective on it, it's uh, very helpful. So I'm always glad to have Alex on. Alex is a author and speaker and uh, founder of Truth for a New Generation, and he's written over 20 books. You can always learn more about Alex at alexmcfarland.com. Alex, welcome. Hello, Bill Arnold. How are you doing um, today, my friend? I'm good, thank you. You know, I want to ask you about what does it mean to be truly Christian? Because as a Christian, someone who has put their faith in trust in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ through his death, and being a follower and disciple of Jesus is more than just our outward behavior. It is the condition of our heart. Yes, uh, a Christian has put their faith in Jesus, and having done so, has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, forgiven of sin, mm-hmm. and been made alive, and they are redeemed. Right. And the, the Bible says that we are a new creature. And uh, while, while that may not be outwardly visible, although oftentimes it actually is, um, the, the beautiful thing is that our, our spirits uh, have been regenerated and made alive by mm-hmm. putting our faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only, you know what, uh, and I know you know this and your listeners do as well, but Christianity is an event and a process. I mean, it's, it's a, an event and a journey. Um, positionally, we are in Christ the moment we repent and believe. We turn from sin, we trust in Jesus, and our, our status, we, we've changed lanes on the highway. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in a brand new lane on the highway called life. But then the journey or the process part of it is, is called, there's a kind of a big 85-cent word, but it's called sanctification, whereby we uh, become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus through being a disciple. And so a Christian is a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, Alex, I want to 
throw a couple of things at you today. I mean, how should Christians respond to claims of a recent convert? Because I, I think claims that someone has converted to Christianity, which is the most wonderful thing ever, but they, they're often met with doubt from the non-Christian world, and, and they're going to have to navigate their way through this. And I want so many people to come to Saving Faith in Christ, and then they're going to go out into the world and say, I've become born again, and maybe you can help navigate that process a little. Well, well you, you know, I think whenever someone tells us that they've come to Christ and they're now a follower of Jesus, that uh, how should we respond to them? I, I think with rejoicing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, w- one thing that's a little bit dubious or dangerous in our culture is we uh, we've we've seen celebrities um, claim to be Christian, and then oftentimes, merely by virtue of the fact that they're famous, they've got this big platform. And let me say, I don't ever want to throw cold water on any fellow believer, but at the same time. Merely because somebody is super-duper famous and they suddenly claim to be saved, I don't think that we should take everything they say or do as normative for for a Christian. And, and the Bible talks about lay hands on no man suddenly, that, that I do think while uh, in terms of being part of the fellowship of believers and being loved and valued, every believer has worth and value, but in terms of being on a platform of leadership, I really do think people need to prove themselves. And one of the areas in which we we have got to be lovingly diligent, if I can say that, lovingly diligent, we have to hold professed Christians to biblical standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a call today, Bill, from a decorated journalist in it might be the biggest Christian newswire service in the country, and he he resigned because they are getting woke, and they're relaxing their standards. They're they're deviating from biblical standards about sexuality, and suddenly, any stories about morals or sexuality or gender, rather than give the biblical perspective. The newsroom has been instructed just to sort of keep quiet or go with the prevailing mindset. Mm. And so my point is that we have to, as individuals, as churches, denominations, and ministries, we must show fidelity to the Word of God. And that's one of the key things that I I expect of Christians— and I expect of leaders, and I expect of myself, that we fearlessly will stand for what the Word of God says and not equivocate. Mm-hmm. Alex, I like what you said about a person proving his faith. You certainly look at Paul. I mean, he was an active enemy of the faith until his conversion, and that resulted in a lot of skepticism among believers. Yeah. The the man that once wasted the church now affirms it. Right. But, but see, there's an old saying— Consistency validates authenticity. Let me say that again. I like that. Consistency validates authenticity. And a lot of people claim to be Christians, but I think the the litmus test is, are you willing to stand on every point of the Word of God 
even the things that are not politically correct. Mm-hmm. And Alex, think of First John 4, 1 that says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the battle rages now, obviously, on, you know, is homosexuality still a sin? Uh, does the Bible speak to transgenderism? Uh, and what about social justice and just morals and the exclusivity? Is Jesus really God incarnate and the only way to heaven? Of course, the answer is yes, he is. But I just, today even, Bill, I was praying and thinking, and I, I just recommitted myself several hours ago to the biblical worldview. Um, and look, I, I don't mean to be brazen or heavy-handed. I'm not, you know, we're not to be abrasive with anybody. But I got to tell you, uh, standing up for the biblical worldview has cost me book deals, book sales, and speaking engagements, and that's okay. I'm just saying that um, it's getting more and more clear, even among religious circles, if you really stand for the Word of God, uh, sometimes there's a price to pay. But that, and, and here's why, I'll put it this way. People say to me, they'll say, but Alex, if I, if I really come out as a Christian, you know, my friend is going to un- unfriend me or you know, whatever. But here's the thing, that that friend who's woke, uh, they didn't hang on a cross and die for you. And that that person that we wish to placate, uh, they didn't lay down their life for us to be saved, and they couldn't. Only Jesus did. And we Christians have got to remember that our fundamental loyalty must be to Jesus and his word because that's what was given to save our soul. Mm-hmm. Alex, you have such a, uh, a gift for being gentle and engaging, and I want to take a break, but when I come back, I want to ask you about, as fully devoted followers of Christ, how important it is to stay engaged in discussion with people that we disagree with. Okay. Because the other approach would be to say, I'm going to just pick up my ball and leave. And I think... Right. Uh, there was a guy that I did some work with and he was a very successful uh, businessman. And he said to me once regarding business, he said, (laughs) if you're not willing to call a person seven times, don't bother calling him once. Wow. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's really interesting because I've, I've always had that stuck in my head. And then I've applied that to my desire to reach people and the lost for Christ. And I think, well, if I'm not willing to reach out at least seven times, uh, as an act of friendship and relationship building, maybe I shouldn't bother doing it once. So anyway, that's just something I want to talk about because we are in an increasingly uh, hostile world where we're listening less and removing ourselves from environments faster. And I think that's not healthy, and I want to get your take on it. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about Alex. We'll be right back.
I'm so glad to be back with Dr. Alex McFarland, my friend and colleague, and he is a lover of all God's Word, and he mm. wants to get the Word out, and he does that beautifully through his books and his teaching and his preaching. And did you once preach in 50 states in 50 days? Did I hear that? <laughs> I did. I really did. In okay, the and you are officially nuts. What was that like? Yeah, I, I know. It was too much caffeine. <laughs> I bet. I yeah. bet. We, we actually did. Sometime, let's take a show, Bill, because I always love to visit with you. And, and I think, you know, you and I, um, it would, you're the kind of guy that it would just be such a blessing to bring over with the family and have dinner for three hours. That'd be you fun. Know? I'd love it. But sometime, I want to tell you of the 50 States in 50 Days tour. Okay. But uh, l- let me say one more thing, and we'll resume our conversation about being a disciple. But when I was on a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Truth for a New Generation event that's coming up in um, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, October uh, 15 through 17. And I mentioned that we're looking at doing 10 rallies next year. And I got from your wonderful listener base probably 25 emails oh, wow. from from several states, uh-huh. from people who said, come to our city. Wow. So my my staff created a form just with some questions about where are you located. And let me give my email again, which okay. is simply alex at alexmcfarland.com, alex at alexmcfarland.com. If you think that your church would like to host one of our biblical worldview rallies, just um, email us and we will email you kind of just this basic, simple questionnaire. And uh, hey, let's do something in 2022. We, um, if God God puts it all together, we'll come to your city. We'll pray. We'll have some music. We'll have some teaching, and uh, we'll do what we can to shine the light of Jesus into our nation. So yeah. email me, and we'll send you the questionnaire, folks. We could probably promote it. I know a guy who who has a radio show. Oh wow! Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thanks. Man. Yeah. And and one last thing, I've got a brand new book coming out September 7. Nice. Call a hundred Bible questions and answers. Everything people ask, you know, why are books not being added to the Bible today? Um, what about uh, the quote unquote lost books of the Bible? What about you know, is there evidence for the resurrection? Is there evidence that King David ever lived? Nice. Um, just all of the factual, scriptural, emotional questions. It's published by Broad Street of Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. And um, comes out September seven. It's just uh, if you get on online or go to your bookstore, a hundred Bible questions and answers. I'd be honored if your listeners might take a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love if it's all right with you, Alex, to get three or four or five copies of the book that we can uh, give out uh, next time you're on the air. Sure. And, and as soon as I get my case, I'm going to ship you a few bills. Oh, good. Terrific. Thank you. Now, if I can just get back to this idea that you do so beautifully, which is uh, remain gentle and yes. lowly and humble in spirit, which is so attractive, and you can continue to keep people engaged in the conversation. And I'm just wondering how we can do that better as fully developed followers of Christ uh, to realize that there will be people we will disagree with and we will differ from, yet we want to show them, we want to be salt and light and share the love of Jesus with them. Absolutely. Great question. Uh, Bill, I think we need to invest in people with no expectation of return. 
I mean, you know, obviously as a Christian, um, I want people to know Jesus. Uh, but we've got to be friends with people and love people um, because people are an end in themselves. You know, Genesis 127 says that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And um, I, I know maybe in, in the evangelical world, there's kind of this, you know, let's cut to the chase. Let me, let me share the Romans road. And if you believe, great. But if you don't believe, adios. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, not, that's not the way. Um, we have to invest in people and love people with no expectation of return. And I've got, I've, you know, I've had atheist friends, Jewish friends, um, people involved in all sorts of things. And sometimes it took even years and even a couple of people, decades, before they became a believer. And then I've got friends, Bill, that have been exceptionally close friends that have never and become a Christian, but my wife and I were just committed that, um, like Matthew 25, when we when we love people and care about people and we we do life together, as they say, it's as if we've done it for Christ Himself. And um, I, I would just encourage people to love their neighbor with no expectation of return. Although we we know, obviously, we want to share the gospel, we want opportunities, but I have found that um, even when people can be very hostile to the message of the gospel, when they know, they know that we legitimately care and, you know, I will do anything I can for you regardless of where you, what you believe or how you live. Um, it really does make an impact. Caring, truly caring for people is is the the skeleton key that opens the locked door of the heart. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, how do we blend these two ideas, keep these ideas together in our head? On one side, we love people without an agenda. On the other side, we understand there's a great sense of urgency for people to hear the gospel and come to saving faith. Uh, I think uh, prayer, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, and uh, there, there is urgency because people live and people die, and Christ is coming. So one of the uh, greatest um, ways we can be a steward of time and we can live with a sense of gospel urgency is to pray, be a tool in God's hand, and love people. And, and obviously, stay informed, be equipped. You know, um, I think about First Peter three fifteen: sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Stay prepared always to be able to give an answer for the reason of the hope that you have. You know, obviously, we need to, you know, cultivate our heart and equip our mind. But urgency doesn't necessarily mean act hastily. Prayer, waiting, patience, love, believe it or not, that is living with a sense of urgency. Yeah, the acts of kindness and love and service are never forgotten, are they? They're not. And um, just for what it's worth, and, and I don't mean to talk about myself, but... We had a man, <laughs> I like when uh, you talk about yourself. 
Well, God bless you. Yeah. I don't mean to bore you with my life story, but here goes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, there was a man who did some work on our house. We were remodeling our kitchen, and um, his name is James. He's a veteran, and he um, had some crazy, weird, bizarre religious ideas. And he was an older gentleman, and from the early '70s, had you know been a part of the hippie movement, and just he was all over the map. And the, the funny thing, you know, we talked about the gospel and shared, you know, things and. Um, he would always show up at the most inopportune time. Like on a Saturday, let's say my wife and I are getting ready to go to the grocery store, and that's when James would show up. <laughs> and I always knew the conversations could be 15 minutes or two hours and 15 minutes. And and there were times I was always cordial, always polite, but there were times when um, I would say, James, I'm so glad to see you, but hey, I got to be somewhere in 20 minutes. So forgive my, you know, but I, I don't have a whole lot of time. Well, he would come and come and come, and um, I never blew him off, even though we didn't always sit down. But when I could, I would give him, you know, if he needed two hours to vent about the Vietnam War, you know, I would do it. And um, so he came by one day about a year and a half ago, and he had cancer, and he was pretty shaken. And uh, so we, you know, I began to a little more forcefully. I said, James, um, you're, if the doctors are right, you're not going to live. Um, let's talk about eternity, please. And and I, I told him once, I said, James, I, you know Angie and I care about you, and I've listened to you and listened hmm. to you for once. I'm going to ask you to listen to me. And I said, I want to I share something, and please just don't talk. Let me finish, okay? And now listen to me. And uh, – we began to talk about Jesus, and then he came another time, and he, he knocks on my door, and he says, I'm ready. Oh. And I said, really? And I was able, in our dining room, led him to Christ, and he prayed. And I'm going to tell you, Bill, when he raised his head from praying the sinner's prayer, he literally looked different. different. He did. But now, there was six years of preparation that on the surface looked like futility. Mm -hmm. But we've got to believe the Holy Spirit is doing things that we just don't always see. Mm -hmm. And it's worth, I'm going to tell you, I love being a witness. I love seeing people come to Christ. I've seen people radically transformed, and I've seen seeds that lay dormant for two decades. Yeah. But God will use us if we're willing to be used. Amen to that. Alex, thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend with your family, and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Hey, thank you, Bill. Blessings. You bet. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about Alex and his great ministry. We'll take a little break, and then in no time, we'll be back with my friend and teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington. We're going to continue our study in the Book of John. All right, we are back with 
our continued study of the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington. I have been loving this study, as many of you have, because you've let me know. And it's uh, great to be back. And I think we're as far as John chapter 18, but I'm not positive. Greg, welcome. You're absolutely right. Thanks, Terrific. Bill. Yeah, let's get started. All right, well, welcome to our study of the Gospel of John as we look at John 18, verse 28 to 19, verse 16. And the title of this lesson is The Trial and the Heart of Jesus. As we read these verses, we find that they are both dramatic and wrenching. But despite the darkness of these verses as Jesus is heading toward his crucifixion, the writer John assures us that the light of God's glory is never dimmed. As we've seen before in God's economy, everything that happens is part of his plan A. There is no plan B, and the last week of Jesus' earthly life is forever known as the Passion, which is the Latin word passio, referring to the sufferings of Christ. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, the betrayal of leadership. This refers to the collusion between the Jewish and the Roman leaders against Jesus. Now, Roman number one, A, Pontius Pilate. Now, when I was young, I first heard this scripture uh, read, well, I... I don't think I'm the only one who misunderstood, but I thought that the man named Pontius was, in fact, a pilot. (laughs) I learned quickly that he was far from being an airplane pilot. Furthermore, in spite of the sympathetic portrayals of Pilate in movies and plays like Jesus Christ Superstar, this was not a good man. Like most Roman officials of his day, Pilate had been charged by the Roman authorities with one political mandate, protect the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The potential for a ride in Jerusalem would have frightened any governor, and Pilate was commissioned to keep a close watch on what was known for centuries as the Jewish problem. Pilate was known as a cruel leader even by Roman standards, and you can read about a previous incident in which his soldiers murdered a number of Jews as they were making sacred sacrifices to God. That's in Luke 13, verse 1. So when Jesus enters Pilate's headquarters, the only concern Pilate has is not whether Jesus is a Messiah for the Jews, but whether or not he's a political threat to the Roman Empire. The dialogue between the two also reflects the tension in matters concerning how any person makes life decision. In other words, it's the tension between truth and power. Jesus speaks of truth when he speaks to Pilate. He says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate then gives the famous response, what is truth? Well, we quickly learn that Pilate considers truth to be a philosophical luxury because he only wants to do what is personally expedient, so he will toss out the truth like an old newspaper. Pilate's further pushed into a corner when the Jews tell him in 19 verse 12, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Now, in the first century Roman history, the the term friend of Caesar, we might call it FOC, it was in fact a technical title given only to a handful of Roman leaders. So when Pilate hears those words, a chill must have gone down his spine, and the truth is now forgotten as the very next verse reads, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. In other words, the decision about what to do about Jesus is up to Pilate, and he knows what he will decide. Now, isn't it ironic that the Romans had a judgment seat when we know who one day will sit on the true judgment seat? Roman number one, B, Annas and Caiaphas. 
Annas had been high priest in Jerusalem previously, but the Romans disposed of him, excuse me, deposed of him, and instead installed his son-in-law Caiaphas as high priest, who was much easier for the Romans to manipulate. But Annas still retains the real power behind the scenes, and he's considered by the Jews to be the true high priest. It also appears that Caiaphas has a working relationship with Pilate, so when Pilate is removed from office in 36 AD, Caiaphas is removed as well. Now we see in both these men that in the end, theology does not matter because Caiaphas simply wants the Jewish nation to survive no matter the consequences. In chapter 11, verse 50, we read that when Caiaphas meets with the other priests concerning what to do with this popular, miracle-working rabbi from Nazareth, Caiaphas tells them this, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Ironically, even though Jesus was executed around the year 33 AD, in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem would be, in fact, destroyed, and the Jews scattered all over the map without an official home for 19 centuries. So the death of one man did not save the Jewish nation. Now, we know Jesus was destined to die as part of God's eternal plan. But this idea that the end justifies the means has led to many horrendous injustices that are not morally justified throughout the world, and they continue today. So Pilate, Annas, and Caiaphas all betray the moral leadership of their Jewish people. Although Pilate has the most number of lines in this scene, as if it were a drama, and it is dramatic, it does not belong to anyone but Jesus because he remains in control as the leading figure in these last hours of his life. Now, this trial is a sham. It's illegal for many reasons, according to both Jewish and Roman laws. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's unjust and certainly unfair. So here's a question for us. How does Jesus respond to injustice and unfairness? The answer is, Roman numeral 2, he responds with truth. In this illegal trial of Jesus, he goes a step beyond not lashing out at the attacker. In the house of the high priest Annas, and he, uh, and he does not let evil go unanswered. After he's punched in the face by a soldier for truthfully answering a question, Jesus did not say, hit me again. Instead, he responds with truth and says, if what I said is right, then why do you hit me? And the Roman soldier has no response. So how do we respond to unfairness and injustice? Roman numeral 2b, we respond with truth. We have all had people speak unkindly to us at one time or another, and although we might want to strike back, which would further escalate the moment, Jesus remains our model for not attacking but responding with truth. And, of course, the results of his answer do not alter the outcome with the high priest, since Jesus is destined by his Father to die. But in our lives, I think we would do well to remember the words of Psalm 15, verse 1, that... A gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, in a typical argument, when one person is expressing anger toward another, and that second person responds with anger, that situation usually escalates, and things can easily get out of control when those people say things to each other, which they often wish they could take back later. 
Now, we've seen this in person, and we often see this on the news. And the divide between those two angry people, whoever they are, only widens and no one wins. The alternative is when one person begins to rage at another and the other person, instead of raging back, responds with a calm, gentle word. And that often de-escalates that incident and things then have a chance to calm down. We are to be civil when we disagree with someone by simply responding with calmness. And it can become a win-win for both people. Now, we all have a choice as to whether we make decisions according to the courage of speaking truth and doing the loving thing for another or compromise and do what is most expedient for ourselves. And when it comes to sharing the gospel with others, we again follow the example of Jesus who never forced himself on others. And neither do we have to force our faith on others. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work on one's heart. All we need to do is represent him by the way we live, and if they ask, we verbally express what he means to us. I mean, there is no argument anyone can make about how one's life has been changed for good, and the beauty of it is Jesus can make an eternal transformation in the life of anyone. Now, before we take a a look at the heart of Jesus, I want to say a brief word about Roman number three, Peter. We know historically that Peter becomes one of the all-time most influential of all Christ's followers after the resurrection. Yet, he will always be remembered as the one who denied Jesus three times. So his life is a warning to all of us. Faithlessness and denial are always within reach of even the most devout believer. But what stands out in John's later chapters, which we'll look at in a few weeks, is the love and forgiveness Jesus extends to Peter. We'll see in chapter 21 that Jesus renews his relationship with Peter when he meets him in Galilee. In spite of his denial of Jesus, Peter remains deeply loved and forgiven by Jesus, as are we all when we own up to our mistakes. He's the God of the second and the third and the fourth chances, and on and on and on. So the lesson we learn from this is to not lose heart when we fail once again to live up to the Lord's standards or even to our own standards for godly living. We repent and keep going because we have work to do for the Lord. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that this work, which has been fashioned specifically for each one of us to do, according to the gifts he's given each of us to do, has been prepared a long time ago by the Lord that we might accomplish them in this life. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved that we might do those good works to glorify the Lord. Or, as the great theologian John Calvin once wrote, it is faith alone that justifies us. But faith that justifies can never be alone. In other words, it's our choices in life that validates the faith that we say we have in the Lord because saving faith is always demonstrated by our lives. The main point in this Roman numeral three is that like Peter, we all face daily temptations to ignore what we know we are to do as Christ followers. It's a constant challenge to stay on the right path, and it's always easier to point out how other people are going the wrong way. But when we return once again to the Lord, 
at least I always say to myself, wow, this is so much better than when I was off the rails. But when we do struggle, remember, we will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness. And we will never be bad enough to prevent God's goodness. He loves us more than we can ever imagine. And he's right there walking alongside us. We face temptations, and we always will, to take the easier, more accessible, wider road that most people take. So we pray daily to be alert and ask ourselves this question throughout the day. Am I being faithful and honoring the Lord in the decision I'm about to make? It's not easy, but then again, we're never alone as believers. The Holy Spirit will always be with us as our advocate and our helper all the way. And, Bill, that brings us to the second half. Okay. Now, Greg, I have to say, not only brilliant teaching, but once again, it's very comforting and challenging all at the same time, which I personally love. So thank you for that. Let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing our study on the book of John. We're in John 18. If you have your Bible out, and if you don't, we'll be back in 90 seconds. Make sure it's out. Be right back. Dr. Greg Heddington, as we continue our wonderful study on the book of John, we're in John chapter 18. And so far, Greg, this has been a great study like they all are. So let's continue where we left off. Thanks, Bill. And by the way, I like that Dave Brubeck transition music. Very nice. (laughs) Thank you so much. I did that for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, for the last part of this lesson, we'll switch gears a bit. This is, of course, a study of John's gospel. But we have also referred to the other three gospels as well to get a full picture of our Lord. So here's a question. If I asked you to express only one aspect about Jesus, what would you say? Have you got something? Okay. Roman numeral four, the heart of Jesus. When Scripture speaks of the heart in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's not referring to our emotional life, nor is it speaking of just a part of who we are. When Scripture speaks of the heart, it's referring to the very center of who we are. In other words, our very motivation for why we do what we do. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon points out, there are 89 chapters in the four gospel accounts, but there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Now, that fascinates me. Now, we could talk about the heart of Jesus for hours, but we will limit that to just a few minutes. Because we claim Jesus as our Lord and have put our lives into his hands, We need to know something about the heart of Jesus. From Scripture, we learn a lot about Jesus, his teachings, miracles, suffering, cross, resurrection. But in only three verses do we hear Jesus open up concerning his heart, and they're perhaps the most wonderful words ever spoken about anyone. And here it is. Here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. 
That's Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. There are two key words here which express the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly. By the way, this subject about the heart of Jesus could have been given in any of these lessons in John, but I decided to speak about it in this lesson as Jesus heads toward the cross. The Greek word translated gentle occurs just three other times in the New Testament. Consider the fact that the word gentle is not how someone else describes Jesus. Gentle is the word that Jesus uses to describe himself. The Greek word for gentle means kind, not harsh, gracious, not easily exasperated. Jesus says the posture that is most natural to him is not the idea of an accusing pointed finger at someone, but rather the idea of open arms. That is different from the way some people typically think of Jesus. And just consider for a moment what that actually means. It means the holy, all-powerful Son of God, co-creator of the universe, describes himself as gentle. And just think for a moment what that implies. It implies that Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe which he helped create. Now, the other self-described word from Jesus in this Matthew 11 passage is the word lowly. Lowly is usually translated as humble in the New Testament. And in fact, it may be translated as humble in the version of Scripture that you use. And the Greek language refers to humble in the sense of being destitute or being thrust downward by circumstances in life. The Apostle Paul uses the word in Romans 12:16 when he tells us, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In other words, lowly refers to the socially unimpressive, who are not the life of the party, but in fact, cause the host to cringe when they show up. I think another meaning that Jesus is suggesting when he calls himself lowly is that he is, in fact, accessible. Think of it in in these words. He's resplendent. His glory is dazzling, holiness. No one in history has ever yet been more approachable in spite of these attributes than Jesus. And we see in the scripture that he never turns away anyone who asks for help. So in order to be enfolded in the loving embrace of Jesus, the minimum requirement for us is simply to open our lives up to him. That's all he needs, ourselves. And it's the only thing he works with. To say it another way, if Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line of the About Me drop-down would read, Gentle and Lowly in Heart. Now, we might say, okay, I like the way Jesus expresses his heart and tells us who he is at his very center. But I want to know who qualifies to have fellowship with him, to be with him. Well, Matthew eleven twenty-eight is clear about who qualifies. It says, all who labor and are heavy laden. In other words, we don't need to unburden ourselves or check the mirror to see how we look before we commit to Jesus. It is our burden that qualifies us to join him. We cannot earn it, so no payments required. Then what happens next? Well, he says, I will give you rest. It's a gift. It's not a transaction. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not if we're really being good that day. According to his own testimony, gentle and lowly 
is the very heart of Jesus. He is tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. Returning to the question I asked earlier, if we were asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring his own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. Now, this is not who he seems to be to everyone indiscriminately. Gentle and lowly does not mean mushy and sentimental. In fact, just a few verses before these words in Matthew 11, Jesus speaks of those who are self-absorbed, unrepentant, and live by their own rules. They will go through judgment and things will not go well for them. But for the repentant, those who come to him and cry out for his help, his lowly gentleness is never outmatched by our sins and doubts, our insecurities, our failures. Gentle and lowly is who he is. It's his heart. And he cannot ungentle himself toward toward his own any more than you and I can change our eye color. And I'm not talking about contact lenses. Hmm. Our eye color is who we are. To lead the life of following Jesus means we are certain to have toil and labor just as Jesus made clear to his followers. So he promises not to make everything easy, but to give rest for our souls. Our problems are not to be handled by us alone because we are in relation with Jesus. His very presence and comfort is always with us. And it's only when we walk more deeply with the Lord in his kindness, his comfort, knowing the heart of Jesus, that we can live the life that Jesus calls us to live. And I thank Dan Ortland for some of these thoughts I've gotten from his book, Gentle and Lowly. So here's the final thought for this lesson. Whenever we think of Jesus... Whether it is his teaching, his miracles, his suffering, the crucifixion, or the resurrection, let us remember this. This is the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. Think of the Lord when we trust, serve, and commit ourselves to him. Let us recall that we know that gentle and lowly is the very heart of Jesus. And how would we know that? Because he told us himself. Greg, it's, it's, I so appreciate that. It's amazing to think how Jesus describes himself uh, so differently than the way we often do. Do you, have, yes. do you have any more thoughts on that? I find that so interesting. Yeah, I do. And I have one. And, and I agree that we rarely hear anyone describe Jesus with such, well, amazingly intimate words as gentle and lowly. Mm-hmm. However, historically, the church would... Um, well, they have some confessions that go a long ways back that talk about our comfort in life. For instance, in fact, back in 1563, the church fathers in Germany got together to write a list of things we believe as Christ followers. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know how many of the listeners have listened to that or ever heard it. It was done in a question-and-answer format It is a surprisingly warm-hearted confession of our faith, which we still use today. And, uh, Bill, if I've got a minute or so, I'd like to read just one of those statements about our faith. So, uh, again, it's in a question-and-answer format, and here's the question that is asked. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is, my only comfort in life and death 
is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Bill, that was written in 1563. Wow, that's amazing. Greg, again, great, great study. I so appreciate you sticking with me on this. We're already uh, through John 18, and I'm looking forward to continuing the study uh, next time we get together. So look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest, and you know this is his study on the book of John, and we're just loving it, and we'll continue it until we finish, and then we'll go on to something else, no doubt. All right, that wraps up Hour 1. we got Hour 2 just ahead. We're going to have a great time of a replay with uh, Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall on the effects of trauma. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.